Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 12, The Last Khan. This episode is going to be divided into two parts by a brief intermission. It's a pretty long one. So the first part is going to deal mostly with the reign of Boris III, or Boris I rather, while the second one is going to shift more towards the history of the brothers Kirill and Methodius and the details of the Bulgarian conversion to Christianity. So just to warn you ahead of time, if you have only, you know, maybe 15 minutes or so to spare, you can stop at that point. So jumping into the story. We left off when Boris took the reins of power as Khan in 852. But from the first day of his reign, he was no ordinary Khan. He was the last Khan. Because before his 37-year reign is up, he will have become a saint and a tsar. Now, while to many of you this may sound like a simple change in title, it actually signifies so much more. That seemingly simple change, in fact, marks a shift towards Christianity, Slavic influence, and the trappings of empire. But when he took the reins of power, Boris was in no mood to sit around and wait for these changes. He was young, impetuous, eager to make his mark. He wanted war and glory, and he was not about to wait for it. Because while the past few decades had seen a fair bit of warfare for Bulgaria, to Boris it was nothing compared with the glory days of Krum. It was to these days that he longed to return. So he immediately began moving his army to the Byzantine frontier in preparation for an invasion. Everyone knew that there was no glory to compare with that of taking Constantinople and defeating the last of the Romans. But the Emperor Theophilus was dead, and Byzantium was being ruled by a regent named Theodora, and she was no fool. She lost no time in sending Boris a message informing him that if he began a war, there could only be two results. Either he would win, but achieve no glory because he had defeated a woman, or he would lose and meet tremendous shame for precisely the same reason. Boris knew she was right. So, in a way, the sexism of the ancient world sort of uh, saves Byzantium from this particular war. It's a bit ironic. But in addition to this, she was actually ready to sweeten the deal for Boris. She offered him a small bit of territory which ran from Anchialos to Develtus, on the Black Sea, to the Martyritsa River and Bulgarian southern fortifications. So roughly the area we would now call the Strangia. Now, of course, this territory meant little to the Byzantines because it had been devastated by war, and the fortress at Anchialos and Develtus, these were both in complete ruins. So, in a way, everyone won. Theodore avoided a war she couldn't afford, and Boris got some territory for nothing. But, of course, as you can imagine, the restless energy of Boris couldn't possibly be content with this victory. He'd gotten territory, sure, but he wanted so much more. He wanted glory so he lost no time in turning his attention to the west. 
Within a few months of his ascension to the throne, he sent a delegation to Louis the German in Mainz, now in Germany, to let him know that Boris was now Khan and that he wanted to forge a new peace. But that means, before we continue, I have to take a second to explain who Louis the German was and what had been happening recently in the Empire Charlemagne to the west, as this uh, area and these people are going to become very important for Bulgarian history. So stepping back uh, just about 10 years, in 843, the Treaty of Verdun had divided the Carolingian Empire into three parts amongst the grandchildren of Charlemagne. Louis the German controlled the eastern portion, Lothair controlled the central part in the southern area, and Charles the Bald controlled the west. Uh, there's going to be a map on the website to help you visualize this. So, Lothair, the guy ruling the central part, died in 855. This further divided his portion of the empire amongst his sons. Now, it was not long after this that serious infighting between the descendants of Charlemagne began. So Boris entered the scene just as this era was beginning, just as the people who inherited the empire of Charlemagne were fighting between themselves. So into this melee, Boris is tempted, obviously. He sees opportunities in this fighting. So in 853, just before the death of Lothair, Charles of Bald in the west and Rastislav, prince of Moravia, a kingdom centered around the modern Czech Republic, convinced Boris to attack Louis the Pious in the east. Again, Boris is craving some glory, and so he gladly attacks. He was aiming to annex Croatian Pannonia, a Frankish vassal state, a flat area and mostly what is now Hungary which was then occupied by Slavs. Yet, in spite of the support of those Slavs in living in the area for the Bulgarian invasion, it did not go well. Although we don't know whether Boris was defeated by the Franks or by the Croats themselves, we know very little details about this war, we know he was defeated and he was forced to retreat. The result was a return to the way things had been before the war, to the status quo antebellum. But fortunately, despite his losses, Boris actually didn't lose any territory or have to pay any tribute. Again, things just went right back to the way they were. But undoubtedly, Boris must have been just so frustrated at this point. His attempts to move to, against the Byzantines had been foiled, the Serbs were becoming more powerful, and, threat, excuse me, and threatening his desire to expand to the west, and his moves against the Croats got him nowhere. Uh, but only if it had been that simple. Because despite the inconclusive nature of Boris's conflicts with the West, the concentration of his forces so far away in Pannonia had actually created an irresistible vacuum, an opportunity for the Byzantines to grab some land of their own in the south. So from 855 until 856, they managed to take a small portion of Bulgarian territory which had given the Bulgarians access to the Aegean Sea. Ironically, a bit of territory Bulgaria will fight over in the 20th century as well. So, some accounts, namely that of Vasil Guizelev, uh, state that the, Bulgarian, that the Byzantines actually took Filipopolis, Zagora, and some ports in the Black Sea, but this is kind of unclear. Uh, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that the Byzantines did take some territory while the Bulgarians were distracted in Pannonia. And other accounts, in fact, like that of uh, Runciman, actually barely mentioned that this happened at all. So 
yeah, as usual, there's differing historical accounts, we don't know the details, but we're pretty sure the Byzantines took some territory. But Boris, as usual, he's undeterred. You know, who cares if he uh, had this you know, these hiccups against the Pannonia, against the Croats, and against the Byzantines? He's not going to let this stop him. He's an ambitious man. So he obviously managed to secure some kind of peace with the Byzantines, in fact, because there's no record of really a significant war being fought with them during Boris's reigns. So the Byzantines take some territory, but no real war happens. It's, you know, like at this point now, Bulgarians have taken some territory from the Byzantines, Byzantines have taken some from the Bulgarians. Uh, nobody really seems to want to fight so much, or at least Boris knows it's a war he can't win right now. So if you've begun at this point to get a bit of a feel for Boris's personality, you can probably guess what his next move is going to be. At this point, he's been foiled in his attempts to expand to the southeast and to the northwest. And knowing that expansion to the northeast, towards uh, you know, modern Romania, Ukraine, that area, offers him really no great prizes, and there's nothing much to take, and that's where the very dangerous and newly arrived Magyars are. So, where does he go but to the southwest? In doing so, he's following the example set by uh, Hans Malmir and Presian, who you'll remember, but with one important difference. Whereas they slowly took territory in Macedonia as part of a fait accompli, as they had to sort of taken the territory and saying, well, we control it, so everybody deal with it. He showed himself, in fact, uh, more cautious at this point than his early years might indicate. And so instead of just rushing in as we might think he would, he actually sent a delegation to the Byzantines in 860, we think, we're not 100% sure on the date, to negotiate a more permanent status of the territory he had already taken in Macedonia. So what he's trying to do here is just consolidate his gains. But in case you meant the, thought this meant that, oh, well, maybe Boris is turning over a new leaf. Maybe he wants to settle down and have some peace. Uh, yeah, wrong. Not usually. Uh, as usual, Boris, he, he's sort of trying to go a peaceful route here. He's sending a delegation, da-da-da-da. But this is a, a temporary kind of shift in strategy to his usual strategy of just declaring war and trying to take territory wherever he can. Because this delegation was probably also trying to secure Byzantine neutrality for a war Boris was about to start against Serbia. Now, as usual, Bulgaria's greatest threat is always a multi-front war. It's been Bulgaria's greatest threat, uh, you know, greatest kind of fear for basically its entire history. So Boris knew that before he could attack the Serbs, he had to secure peace with the Byzantines and, again, secure uh, a sort of Byzantine acceptance of his gains in the southwest or in Macedonia. Because it's what just had happened before. The Byzantines had taken some territory because he was distracted in Pannonia. Now, there's considerable debate over when this war with the Serbs occurred. Uh, some place around 853, which seems very early. Others say it occurred 10 years later. The most recent scholarship places the war actually a little bit earlier, but uh, with a Bulgarian army led by Boris's son Vladimir actually going against the Serbs in 853. Uh, this seems a bit strange to me, but again, uh, the, the timelines are all over the place. Uh, there's lots of different accounts, different theories, but we'll go with 853. So the question then is, why on earth would Boris have sent his son with an army against the Serbs at the same time he just led another army against the Croats? Again, if the most recent historians kind of conclude this is probably the date, okay, I'll believe them, but this still seems very, very strange to me. So take that with a grain of salt. 
So regardless of when this war happened, we know how it uh, sort of ended up. It ended shortly. With the Serbs, again, just like the last war against the, the Bulgarians, they used their knowledge of the local terrain, these mountains and valleys and forests, to triumph against their enemies. Vladimir, the son of Boris, and twelve of the leading boyars are all captured. But once again, Boris seems to have made the best out of a defeat, as the peace negotiations actually brought about an alliance between the Serbs and the Bulgarians. Thus, the prisoners were returned, and the Serbs were lavished with gifts. So... Defeat again happens, but there's no real disaster. So but the status of this alliance probably didn't last too long, because soon afterwards, a civil war breaks out amongst Serbian princes, and Prince Mutimir banishes his two brothers to the Bulgarian court. So if this alliance happened, it was probably nullified by a quick change in leadership which occurred afterwards. Ultimately, Prince Mutimir will reign for around the same period that Boris will, and will also convert his people to Christianity, just like Boris will. But one conversion will involve submission to the Byzantine Emperor, and one will not. We'll talk about that as we go on. So, indeed, this rapid series of wars we've seen, bringing Bulgarian armies to nearly every corner of the Balkans, uh, some sources also point to a possible war with Moravia in the 860s, excuse me, so all these events would compromise what Runciman calls, quote, the last episode in the history of the heathen empire. I, I, he's a little biased, but uh, sometimes his uh, over-the-top language is entertaining. Except for the, the gift of territory from the regentess uh, Theodora early on, Bulgaria had actually lost every... Or Bulgaria, Boris, had lost every war he had started. And he had actually started quite a few wars at this point, possibly three or four. Yet, but it really is remarkable. He, he hasn't really lost any territory in these wars, just this exchange, gaining some and losing some with the Byzantines. So when you look at this, uh, what was gained and lost, it seems like Bulgaria actually comes out at about even. They come out as a draw for the, the results of these wars. So how on earth is Boris considered one of the great Bulgarian khans? Well, I mean, he was undoubtedly a brilliant diplomat. Uh, perhaps uh, you know, not such a good general or strategist. Uh, the results of these wars can attest to that. But beyond all that, I think you know you can look at Boris as some diplomat. It's amazing he you know, lost all these wars and ended up not losing so much territory. Uh, but his real greatness, well, his accomplishments are really in the cultural field because the ninth century was a period of immense changes, and Boris reigned over Bulgaria at the culmination of these changes. I mentioned at the very beginning, the shift towards uh, Slavic identity and language, the shift towards Christianity, the shift towards empire. But Boris is in charge right when these things are coming to a head. So to give you an idea of just how much has happened in Europe in the last century, I want to read you guys an extended quote from page 375 of J.B. Barry's A History of the Eastern Roman Empire from the Fall of Irene to the Ascension of Basil I, catchy title, published in 1912. Quote, if in the year A.D. 800 a political prophet had possessed a map of Europe such as we can now construct, he might have been tempted to predict that the whole eastern half of the continent, from the Danish peninsula to the Peloponnesus, was destined to form a Slavonic empire, or at least a solid group of Slavonic kingdoms. From the mouth of the Elba to the Ionian Sea, there was a continuous line of Slavonic peoples, the 
a board a board rights is a board rights. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The Wilsey, the Sorbs, the Lusitanians, the Bohemians, the Slovenes, the Croatians, and the Slavonic settlements in Macedonia and Greece. Behind them were the Lechs of Poland, the Kingdom of Great Moravia, Serbia, and the strongly organized Kingdom of Bulgaria. While farther in the background, there were all the tribes that were to form the nucleus of yet unborn Russia. Thus, a vertical line from Denmark to the Adriatic seemed to mark the limit of the Teutonic world, beyond which might have been deemed impossible that German arms would ever make any permanent impression in this serried array of Slavs. While on the Balkan Peninsula, it might have appeared not improbable that the Bulgarian power, which had hitherto proved a formidable antagonist to Byzantium, would expand over Illyricum and Greece and ultimately drive the Greeks from Constantinople. Such was the horoscope of nations which might plausibly have been drawn from a European chart in which the history of the next 200 years was destined to falsify. End quote. So in other words, in the year 800, it seemed Eastern Europe was going to be dominated by Slavs. Both the Germanic and Greek peoples wouldn't likely stand a chance against them if they were unified. But of course, as Barry points out, it definitely does not turn out this way. The Slavs were never, never able to and have never been able to unify. But being divided by kingdoms and loyalties and ultimately religion, while the vast steppes of the East continues to produce new people like the Magyars and ultimately the Mongols, were going to come in and create chaos in new powerful states in equal measure. All these forces come together to prevent this sort of possibly predicted Slavic uh, Eastern Europe from coming to fruition the way uh, this fictional person might have imagined in the year 800. So while being divided by the distances of Eastern Europe as well as the chaotic twists and turns of history, the new Slavonic kingdoms being forged all over did have something in common. They all sought legitimacy from more established cultures, kingdoms, and religions of Europe. They knew one of the great lessons in history that legitimacy has a power all of its own. So eventually, each of these Slavic groups is going to convert to Christianity. But the source of that Christianity will lead some to Catholicism and others to Orthodoxy, leading to a division which has played an important role in European history and the history of the Slavs ever since. And therefore, on this small tangent, not just to set the stage for Boris's conversion to Christianity, but to take a moment to look at the wider picture. I've mentioned many times how the Khans of Bulgaria have been led in part by a greater drive for legitimacy. Attila the Hun had shown that you can be the most powerful man in Europe, but if you don't have the stability and legitimacy to back up your empire, it can crumble just as quickly as it was built. In the same way, the Romans showed that even when your empire is crumbling, if you have some sense of legitimacy, you can still be very powerful beyond the, the times when it seems like you should be powerful. So you can, if you're thinking about the role of legitimacy in history in general, think about those two kind of contrasting examples, and there's many other ones. Think about the Romans in the late times of their empire and think about Attila the Hun and what happens to his empire as soon as he dies. So perhaps then it was inevitable that the Bulgarian Khans would eventually abandon their ancestral religion of Tangra. It seems like this, you know, if they're looking for this kind of legitimacy. But what was definitely far from inevitable 
was that the Bulgarians would become orthodox. Just as many other Slavs had done and would do throughout history, when Boris became interested in conversion, he sought to make the choice between following the Catholicism of the Pope in Rome or the orthodoxy of the emperor in Constantinople. The choice to convert was rather a practical one, and so this decision would be based on practical considerations. So Boris began this process by looking for allies against the Byzantines, which you know, allies could gain by converting to their form of Christianity. He's thinking geopolitically here. He's really not thinking in terms of religious dogma, which branch of Christianity is true, which is false. This is not at the forefront of his mind. So he found just this kind of an ally in his recent foe, Louis the German, and against his uh, recent ally, Rostislav of Moravia. So as part of this alliance, Louis was going to send missionaries which would convert the Bulgarians to the Catholic faith. But fate intervened, as Bulgaria suffered many great natural calamities and famine, leading to the Byzantine Emperor Michael III, who had taken over from Theodora, to grab this moment of weakness and invade Bulgaria. Boris was thrown completely off guard and had to quickly sue for peace. So recap there, you know, Boris is looking towards uh, the Frankish Empire and towards Catholicism to make some strong allies against the Byzantines. But just at this moment, all these natural calamities, these earthquakes, these famines, all these things weaken Bulgaria, and the Byzantines suddenly strike when no one is expecting it, and Boris has to sue for peace to prevent a catastrophe. But fortunately, like we mentioned, Boris seems to have pretty good diplomatic skills, and so he brings these to bear again. He manages to turn this defeat into its own sort of victory. By promising to be baptized and converted to Orthodox Christianity, he manages to regain Zagora, a bit of territory that he had recently lost to the Byzantines. We think, again, so many of these things are, this is our best guess. So, Boris was baptized in Pliska with the emperor himself as his godfather. He took the Christian name Michael. But what does this mean exactly? I mean, one of the greatest reasons Bulgaria had fought Christianity up to this point was that they saw Christianity as a step on the way to Byzantine oppression. With this in mind, it's not surprising that Boris was actually baptized in secret. So he agreed to convert his country, to convert himself, but uh, he had to do this kind of slowly. He had to do this very, very carefully. And we're going to see why very soon. Because, of course, this conversion wasn't simply about Bulgaria. It had much larger implications, because this period, 9th century, was also a time of steadily increasing tensions between the Eastern and Western churches. While power struggles between Rome and Constantinople had been going on for centuries, theological differences and power struggles inherent in trying to convert non-Christian peoples of Europe led the Pope and the Patriarch to attack and, at times, excommunicate each other openly. Thus, each conversion of a people would increase the strength of a faction, and, missionary, and because of this, missionary activity was fervent throughout the 9th century. But how did it come to Bulgaria? Interestingly enough, it wasn't as a result of the work of professional missionaries as much of the, uh, as it was much of the Slavic world. You know, much of the Slavic world, you had missionaries come in, they gradually converted people, and eventually uh, the leader would convert. But this is really not how things happen in Bulgaria. Now, you'll recall that Boris's great-uncle in Rabotas converted to Christianity. It was brought to him by a Greek slave. And this was, in many ways, the irony 
of Bulgaria's wars with the Byzantines. The more they fought the Greek Christians, uh, the more Greek Christians came into the Bulgarian state. And the more they came, the more they spread Christianity amongst the local populations. But of course, we already know that uh, that, that the kind of will of the population played virtually no role in the spread of Orthodox faith over Catholicism. That's really pure politics at this point. All right, so this is normally when we would divide things into two episodes. But as promised, this is going to be an extra long episode. So think of this as an intermission. A great place to stop, take a break, go get a cup of coffee, do what you're going to do, or listen on. So, jumping into part two. Although it wasn't missionaries who really converted Bulgaria or decided on Bulgaria's conversion, some missionaries did play a role. In particular, the most famous brothers in Bulgarian history, Cyril and Methodius. Their story begins in Great Moravia. Again, as I mentioned, mostly centered around the modern Czech Republic. Its leader, Prince Rastislav, wanted to adopt Christianity for all the benefits it offered at that time. But he was very wary of adopting the Catholicism of his Frankish neighbors, much in the same way that Bulgaria was wary of adopting Orthodox Christianity because it believed it would lead to Byzantine domination. Rastislav believed that adopting Catholicism would bring Frankish missionaries, Frankish influence, and Frankish domination. So in 862, a year before Boris's conversion, Rastislav sent a request to Constantinople for them to send him missionaries. He was willing to accept orthodoxy as a way to adopt Christianity while avoiding Frankish domination. In response, the emperor initially sent two priests, Cyril and Methodius. The sons of an imperial official based in Salonika, one of the great cities of the empire, they had grown up in part, in a part of the empire with a heavily Slavic influence. Remember, a lot of Slavs by this point have settled around uh, Greece, Macedonia, and this area. So they had the Slavic influence, and as a result, both brothers spoke the local Slavic dialect, in addition, of course, to Greek. So anyone speaking the Slavic language knows that although speaking one doesn't mean you understand all the rest perfectly, it goes a long way towards helping you understand and communicate with other Slavic speakers. I speak reasonably good Bulgarian, and as a result, if I hear even Polish or Russian, if I listen closely, I can pick out probably what they're talking about. So today, there's a significant debate about how we classify these brothers and to whom they belong. But this is a classic example, I think, of people attempting to take history before the era of nationalism in the nation-state and trying to kind of plug it into our contemporary understanding of nationality. The brothers came from a culturally and linguistically Greek world, although their mother may have been a Slav, and as I mentioned, they spoke a Slavic dialect, and there was certainly a Slavic influence where they grew up. But to claim that they were Bulgarians or Greeks entirely misses the point. They likely would have identified themselves as Christians and as subjects of the Byzantine Empire above all else. To try to sort of uh, pin them down as this nationality or that nationality really just misses the point. It misses the point of how they would have identified, and it completely misunderstands how nationality worked in this era in history. So these Christian, Slavic-speaking, well-educated brothers, they seem like perfect candidates to begin the conversion of the people of Great Moravia. But as they began their task, the first obstacle they faced quickly became clear. 
the old Slavic languages didn't possess many of the words necessary to properly discuss Orthodox doctrine. Now, if you speak a second language, ask yourself, do you know the word for transubstantiation or patriarch or uh, divinity, these kinds of words? You probably don't, unless you're really an excellent speaker of that language. In addition, anyone familiar with the early history of Christianity knows how many incredible problems arose from very subtle differences in translation and interpretation of a particular word. The brothers certainly knew this and acted very carefully as a result. So they took the Slavic language they knew, they added some Greek words and grammar to form the language we now call Old Church Slavonic. Because it was literally a language developed for the church, for the Slavs. So this is a language that's sort of invented, it's, it's taking little bits from different places, and it's a language designed to allow the Slavs to use their language in church and to talk about Christian doctrine and to have their own, excuse me, their own translation of Christian texts. But of course, this new language had to be written down. At this stage in history, neither the Latin nor the Greek alphabets had the necessary letters to convey the sounds of the Slavic languages. This is why I mentioned before that up, you know, up to this, a little after this point, pretty much all the texts or the sort of stone carvings we have uh, from the Bulgarian Empire are written in Greek because you can't even really write uh, Proto-Bulgarian or uh, the Slavic dialects of this area in Greek letters just because you don't have Greek letters for a lot of the sounds you need to make. So to solve this problem, the brothers could have either modified an existing alphabet, alphabet as many Slavic uh, languages eventually did. You know, most Slavic languages, I don't know not how many, but many use Cyrillic letters that so we'll talk about later. Many use modified Latin letters. So they chose to craft an alphabet that we now call Gogolitic, or Glagolitsa in Bulgarian. Now, some people, there's some theories around today that maybe Glagolitsa, Gogolitic existed before. Maybe they invented them. I'm not sure. It's, uh, it's, it's something that, like, very, very new scholarship is discussing. So it's going to be a while before we can come down firmly on either side. But what is clear is that Cyril and Methodius did not invent Cyrillic. Let me repeat that. Cyril and Methodius did not invent Cyrillic. This is a very common misconception. They possibly, probably invented Gogolitic, totally different alphabet. But unfortunately, because Gogolitic is quite cumbersome, it's very difficult to write, uh, if you, you can just Google it or something, you'll see letters. It eventually leads to the development of modern Cyrillic, which is something developed by the students and the students of the students of Cyril and Methodius. So, Cyril and Methodius sort of set up the environment into which uh, Cyrillic is going to be invented, but they themselves do not invent the language. So this is the two, just to kind of recap, the two biggest myths about Cyril and Methodius are that they were depending on who you ask, either Greek or Macedonian or Bulgarian, and that they invented Cyrillic. Now, in my opinion, looking at the sources, both of these are incorrect. They both kind of, one's factually wrong and the other one just misses the point. So, it was into this new hybrid language that the brothers begin to translate all the important texts of orthodoxy. Armed with this work, they come to Great Moravia in 863. Their efforts to promote both the Slavic liturgy and orthodoxy enjoyed actually considerable success amongst the local population, which it should be noted had actually already, to a great extent, converted to Christianity on their own. So, at this point, there are a lot of Christians in Great Moravia, and they're very receptive to these brothers 
who have taken uh, what was what would have been sort of a Greek liturgy, what would have been Greek texts, and translated them into something that these Slavs can learn to read and write in. So, of course, they're very receptive, receptive to this. The opposition to them, the, the people who are not happy about the Slavic liturgy and about Kirill and Methodius, is, of course, coming from Catholic agents of Louis the German. They're opposed, opposed both to the spread of orthodoxy and, in particular, they are very opposed to the spread of a Slavic liturgy as a part of the wider struggle between orthodoxy and Catholicism. So most people are very receptive, but there's some Catholics and some Catholic priests and missionaries in Moravia who are really not happy with this. So as their work in Moravia continues, their fame increases throughout the Christian world. People hear about these brothers. And in 867, they're invited by the, invited by the Pope, uh, Pope Adrian II, to Rome. There, they're warmly greeted in the Vatican, and the Pope actually authorizes, uh, gives them permission, to use their Slavic liturgy in an attempt not to lose all the Slavs to Orthodoxy. So this seems a bit weird to us, where you think of Orthodoxy and Catholicism as sort of fighting, which they are, off and on. Some popes and patriarchs hate each other, some kind of work together, they're still all Christians, so in this case, the Pope seems to want to kind of bring Kirill and Methodius over to him and to kind of... Uh, use some of their ideas to not to kind of upset the Slavs so much and not push all the Slavs away from Catholicism. And so at this point in Rome, Cyril dies, he becomes a monk, and he very shortly dies there. So now we have just Methodius left over. Methodius, after a little while, leaves Rome to continue his work in the Frankish territory of Pannonia. Again, this is mostly kind of modern Hungary using his newly acquired papal blessing to work with the Slavs living there. Now, it's at this point that things descend into a very, very complex web of papal politics and Catholic politics. And I don't have the patience to really get into the details. I doubt you have the patience either. But in brief, the Slavs were indeed allowed to read translated religious texts, but Methodius was denied permission to deliver mass in Old Church Slavonic. So the Pope initially seems to kind of embrace these ideas, then he hedges his bets a little bit and draws a line at having a mass in this language. In fact, the, the question of foreign language mass is going to continue as an issue in the Catholic Church for hundreds of years after this. So Methodius ends up dying in 885, and the new pope, Stephen V, refuses to allow his successors to even use the Slavic liturgy. So this new pope is now backtracking on Adrian II's uh, decisions. Immensely frustrated by this turn of events, the successors of Kirill Methodius leave Pannonia for Bulgaria to continue their work in more friendly conditions. So it's rather interesting that Cyril Methodius themselves had really little direct connection with Bulgaria, but in fact it's their legacy in establishing the first Slavonic script, training religious scholars, and doing this translation that would later lead to incredibly important developments in Bulgaria. So their influence is, you could say, sort of indirect. But still in Bulgaria, there are saints, there are national heroes, the National Library is named after them, you can see a big statue of them there, there are statues of them all over the place, really. They're really revered. So, in this sense, looking at the history, should they be so revered? Yes and no. They did a lot of important work, they're very important historical actors, but their connection, direct connection with Bulgaria is a bit tenuous. Okay, so... Now that the brothers have been explained, we can jump back to what was happening with Boris at the time of his conversion. So, you know, kind of knowing the history of Cyril Methodius uh, sets the stage for what's going to happen right after this. So we know 
uh, that part of Boris's conversion was about finding powerful allies and legitimacy in Europe. But it was also, in part, about unifying his state. You'll remember that Bulgaria at this time was gradually homogenizing, becoming more singular. Overcoming the divisions between the Slavs and the Proto-Bulgarians is a part of uh, these kind of cultural movements and these political developments. Yet differences still exist in language, religion, and customs between the Slavs and Proto-Bulgarians. While the Khans have been trying to unify the state to make it more powerful, the Proto-Bulgarian boyar nobles have been resisting this in order to maintain their power, their culture, and their language. So remember, a lot of these Slavs had already converted to Christianity before Boris makes a conversion, and Slavs have been gradually kind of rising in the ranks, becoming more powerful and more important. Their language is becoming more important. But these boyar nobles, these aristocrats, are not happy with these developments. They are the, the sort of conservative defenders of the status quo, and they have the, at times very tenuous relationships with the Khans because they don't like the centralization of power and the homogenization of the state. So you can imagine these boyars are not exactly thrilled with the Byzantine priests who are now coming to baptize the country after Boris's conversion. But Boris himself, he has other pressing issues for the moment. He was still in the process of working out the details of what's going to happen with Bulgaria's conversion. What's going to be the status of the new Bulgarian church? How is it going to relate to the rest of Christianity? In discussions with the Byzantine patriarch, the head of the Byzantine church, he wanted to know how he should live as a Christian, as well as how his church should be governed. It goes without saying that he was seeking an independent church that would not have to submit to the Byzantine patriarch. Even though the Byzantines declared this war and he had to submit to them and declare and sort of become orthodox, he hoped that this wouldn't mean that he would have to submit to Byzantine domination. This is still very important to him. So he sends a list of all these questions he has to the patriarch. And in response, he receives a very long letter on the details of Christian legal history, the history of kind of theological disputes, and all these other minute details that are mostly not really relevant to his concerns. As you can imagine, he's not really thrilled with this answer. I mean, he had a lot of very practical, very basic questions. You know, things like, can I eat this? Uh, can I have sex on this day? Can I uh, hit this person? Can I kill a person for this reason? You know, very simple, basic questions. What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And in response, he gets like this obscure theological text. So he decides to keep his option open, options open by sending his kavkhan, remember that's like a prime minister, Peter, who's also his cousin, to see the Pope and investigate what kind of terms he would be offered in Rome. At the same time, there's a rebellion by the boyars against Boris and his religious conversion. Really, you probably could have seen that coming. You know, the boyars are not happy with centralization. They're not happy with many of the things the Khans are doing. But converting Christianity, especially Orthodox Christianity, this is a step too far. You know, this, this really challenges their political and religious independence and privilege. In addition, this conversion is shifting the justification of Boris's power from that of first among equals, amongst boyars, to being a leader who's ruling by the will of God. So also in this case, the boyars are really not happy that becoming a Christian leader would allow Boris to use a more divine, a more kind of supreme justification for why he is going to be Khan and then Tsar. So there's really nothing the boyars like about these changes. The boyars are just not happy. Now, we know uh, only about this rebellion from outside Christian sources, which, unsurprisingly, uh, 
kind of say things like uh, Boris defeated a Boyar army marching on Plisko with the help of several miracles. But you know, whether however this happened, we don't really have reliable sources. What is clear is that the Boyars are soundly defeated. Boris pardons the less important participants, but he takes the 52 leading families involved and kills all of them. While this did not utterly destroy the Boyar class, it does significantly weaken the Boyar class, allowing Boris to further advance his reforms. While we don't know the details about these reforms, we believe that Boris restructured the provinces and used appointees who relied on him for their position in order to further centralize the state, increase the efficiency of government, and increase his personal power within that state. After this rebellion had been put down, this Khan Peter returns with a papal embassy. The Pope was very interested in blowing Bulgaria away from orthodoxy, not surprising. Boris had also sent word to the Franks, who were still also very interested, and so they also sent an embassy uh, to discuss this possible religious conversion. This embassy arrived uh, early the next year, in 867. But more importantly, the papal embassy had, as opposed to the Orthodox one, actually answered all of Boris's questions in detail. In 115 specific responses, the Pope told Boris what would be acceptable and uh, that he desired that the Bulgarians should change their custom or practice. When he said, you know, you guys do this, you shouldn't do it anymore, he would explain exactly why. So really a huge difference. Uh, the, the Catholic Church is very clear on what's expected, what the Bulgarians have to do, what's cool, what's not cool. Uh, but unfortunately, the Pope also, like the Patriarch, believes that the Bulgarians are not ready to have an independent church. Instead, he offers to send some bishops and eventually an archbishop to govern the uh, Catholic Church in Bulgaria. So you may be asking yourself, how on earth did Boris go so quickly from accepting orthodoxy at the end of the Byzantine sword to possibly now accepting Catholicism? Well, by the time the Bulyar rebellions happens, in the, nor uh, the, the war in the Northeast is already over, and Bulgaria is fully ready to defend itself against the Byzantines should they attack again. So enough time has passed. Now Boris feels confident militarily, and this uh, military confidence allows him to explore his options. So, unsurprisingly, the Byzantines are absolutely furious about this. They thought the Bulgarians were going to convert for them, and now, you know, Boris says, well, maybe, maybe, we're looking at our options. The Bulgarians had sent Byzantine priests back to Constantinople and were now uh, adopting what the Byzantines considered to be heretical practices. So the Byzantines are really angry and they blame this on the Bulgarians. They also blame this on the Pope. Another reason why they're really not happy with the Pope. The Byzantines express their anger by telling Boris that he is following a false Christianity which will never save his soul. But at the same time, the Pope is actually overplaying his hand. The Pope believes that he's already secured Bulgaria and that, the, and that Boris is definitely going to convert to Catholicism and that Bulgaria is essentially within the Catholic sphere. And so, but Boris, of course, he actually thinks he's still in a position to choose his allegiances. So there's a bit of a miscommunication here. So when Boris asks the Pope to appoint the head of the embassy in Pliska, uh, an archbishop, to be the archbishop of Bulgaria. The Pope is angry, and, you know, how dare this upstart guy, this guy just converted to Christianity, he has the nerve to tell me who should be appointed to be an archbishop. The Pope very acts essentially very arrogantly, and he recalls the man in 868, which in turn really angers Boris. 
So all of a sudden now the Pope really had a good shot of converting the Bulgarians, but he acts arrogantly. He sort of pushes Boris around, doesn't want to kind of deal with Boris as an equal. Everyone gets angry. In response, Boris sends a new delegation to the Patriarch in Constantinople to further explore his options in 870. It's rather amazing that the Western Christian Church really lost the chance to convert the Bulgarians to Catholicism over this incredibly minor issue, who is going to be appointed as an archbishop. But frankly, this is not actually the only time that the Church's arrogance is going to hurt its ability to conduct diplomacy with new converts. Uh, this is a kind of a, a pattern which repeats itself in history. So shortly afterwards, an archbishop is appointed for Bulgaria, and Orthodox priests uh, return to the country, and the Western priests, the Catholic priests, are expelled. So Boris ends up satisfied with his arrangement with the Byzantines and lets the Byzantines appoint this archbishop. But he then, but he does uh, have uh, a total autonomy in Bulgaria. Um, he does kind of manage to secure some autonomy, so the Byzantines will appoint this archbishop, but the Byzantines will not tell him what to do. So he sort of hedges his bets. Boris moves towards orthodoxy, but he gets uh, some kind of concessions. Now, for the next several years, the Byzantine Orthodox Church influence in Bulgaria is going to grow slowly until in 886, the disciples of Methodius, his students, having just been expelled from Moravia, as we discussed, are going to come to Bulgaria. Boris will welcome them with open arms, and they will begin to work further on this Slavic liturgy that they've developed. In this way, Bulgaria is going to save their work by being the only place which will welcome them and allow them to continue to work on this project. But beyond this, as I mentioned, Boris wanted to use Christianity as a tool to unite the people under his domain. Bulgaria contained so many Slavic tribes whose loyalty was mostly to their tribe and not to the Bulgarian state, and many of these Slavic-speaking priests began to change this by instilling a more unified Christian and Slavic identity, which closely identified itself with the newly Christian central Bulgarian state. So these, this is an immensely important development we're going to talk much more about next time. So at this point, there's still plenty more to discuss about the last few years of Boris's reign, but I think this episode is at risk for getting a little bit too long, too difficult, covering too many things. So we're going to stop here. Next time, we're going to finish the reign of Boris. We're going to discuss the establishment of new learning centers by Saints Nome and Clement, and an attempt to return Bulgaria to paganism, and of course, much, much more. So look for that hopefully next month. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook or writing us a review on iTunes. Also, check out our website, bghistorypodcast.com, where you'll find lots of useful resources that will come along with each episode. For this episode, we have several useful maps you'll definitely want to check out. Also, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It really makes a huge difference for us, and it gets us really excited every single time. This month, we want to send out huge thank yous to listeners Ben Coley and Yulia Grozdanova for their generous donations. Thanks, for all, thanks to all your donations. Our producer Martin and I have now just about broken even on this project and paid off what we owed for all the equipment we bought. So, thanks so much. It feels good to be at, uh, well, you know, in the black, so to speak. Also, to celebrate my return to Bulgaria after 
spending far too long outside, Martin and I are thinking about having a beer with some of our listeners who might be in or around Sofia. If you're interested in meeting up with us one of these days, contact us on the Facebook page and we'll set something up. Okay, that's everything. So, until next time, uspech, or in English, good.